welcome to episode two of the lowest of the low podcast see thanks for joining us again for our second show um or maybe it's the first time you're joining us and thanks for joining us anyway um uh, today we're going to be talking about um some quite serious and tough issues today uh we'll be talking about the um disappearance and subsequent murder of sarah everard and the fallout uh of, of that event and of course we'll be talking about the, the involving Meghan Markle and Prince Harry in their Oprah Winfrey interview which has since gone on to gain some infamy. Yeah so Sarah Everard uh, disappeared in South London um, and on the evening of the on the evening of the 3rd of March 2021 her uh, remains were found in the, in the woods near Ashford in Kent. Uh, a police officer has been arrested and charged for, uh, under suspicion of her murder and of course uh, there were vigils, peaceful vigils, uh, in Clapham Common uh, in the days following her death. And then, of course, we saw quite a heavy-handed police response to that. Just wondered, Aaron, like, what, did, what did you make of of the sort of... I mean, we'll, we'll start with the police stuff, because I'm, I'm curious, because you know, that sort of... In, in of itself, that, that sub-situation is sort of emblematic of, of the wider debate here. So what did you think about how the Metropolitan Police handed the, the vigil in Clapham Common? Yeah, I think it's a, a really difficult situation, obviously, and it's a terrible one that's that's happened. And obviously it's never good for someone to lose their life. Um, and, you know, condolences go out to, to all Sarah's friends and family. Um, and again, it's it seems to be something happens all the time now. I mean, we've seen the protests. We saw the Black Lives Matter protests. We saw the policing of that. And obviously, you know, things don't always go to plan as they did. And I, I, I feel sorry for, I know this is probably going to seem a little bit controversial, but I see, I feel sorry for, for both sides. I feel there were genuinely people there who were there to mark Sarah's life, um, to remember her for who she was. Um, and obviously it was a terrible case, as I said, that, that happened, the thing that happened to her. And the police, obviously, it's difficult because obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, and it's, I don't know if it's law, I don't think it's written into law, but the guidelines obviously say no mass gatherings. And I know there was that appeal to the to the judge um, to, to make the protest legal and to, to avoid police intervention. But I think with the guidelines, it sort of gives gives the police nowhere to go not that I'm saying that the way they dealt with it was particularly great um I think sort of there was a lot of you know things could have been avoided it didn't have to go that way they didn't have to be people handcuffed on the floor and I get that from I I can't say to speak because I wasn't there um a lot of people were there protesting peacefully but there was a lot of people there that I heard about that perhaps weren't there for the right reasons um I saw a post on Facebook that was I don't know how accurate it was or whether it came from someone who knew Sarah or was related to Sarah. Um, but they said that's not what she would have wanted. Well, of course, she would have probably wanted a peaceful vigil and it didn't go the way the way that it, it was meant to. Um, and it is sad because I almost feel like her death is is being, over not overruled, but overshadowed by this event that's now happened in the wake of it. And it's a sad think is someone's lost their life and that's what I think people should be remembering here not how the police have been dealing with it um again like I just 
I mean, I made a couple of notes on this, Chris, and I don't know how you feel um, feel about the police and stuff, and I'm sure we'll give your opinion in a minute, but I just find the whole narrative of it very difficult because, I'll be honest with you, obviously, at the start, it was very sort of... The, the pro- there is a problem there. There's no doubt there's a problem. Um, and again, you can obviously take it personally and say, oh, well, they're just pointing fingers at all men. And that's not what this is about, I don't think. I think people have reacted that way. Of course, they're entitled to their opinion. Um, you know, I think there was a good video that went around the other day of someone standing up on stage. And I hadn't really thought about it like this until I actually saw that video about, you know, he said, oh, well, I'm a good guy and nothing's... I've never done anything, but then he knew someone who had. And, you know, I know people who've had bad experiences of things that happened to them um, in the past. Obviously, that's their story to tell. That's not for me to say anything on. But this whole whole narrative of people saying, oh, it's not all men. Well, get involved in it if you're not going to. It might not be you, but make sure you get involved with it. Then you can give your opinion on it. Um, I, I just find the whole... Like, there was a lot of people there shouting obscenities at the police and no justice no peace and all that stuff at them but I find that the narrative of the people versus the police very very difficult about it because it is he was a bad egg this guy if he's if he's done what they accuse him of doing um, and I don't think that everyone's a bad person but again I think it is about having a conversation and people doing more to, to stop things like this from happening and that's not a very short winded answer sorry <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was quite comprehensive, actually. I was quite quite impressed with that as a bit of an opening gambit. Um, yeah, I, I, I totally appreciate what you're saying. It's always... There's definitely, obviously, problems, isn't there, when, when we try and frame this whole people versus police debate. I think uh, the point I was sort of trying to hint at in sort of the opening of, of this topic is, obviously, we saw... Obviously, I've only seen glimpses of... Of, of, of videos that have been taken at the vigil. Obviously, I wasn't there, um, so I, I've only maybe seen um, very small snippet, snippets of what happened. But I think it's this um, sort of idea, obviously, that the the man who has been charged um, with Sarah's murder, obviously, is a police officer. Um, a lot of the um, political response to how to sort of alleviate women's fears about being uh, subjected to violence from men in the wake of Sarah's murder has been uh, to use plainclothes police officers in, in nighttime venues and places like that. And it just, to me, it seems that, you know, that's what I was trying to get with sort of, um, <laughs> it was almost a really um, poignant bit of irony that, you know, the police were being so heavy handed uh, with with these obviously largely a female crowd at Clapham Common, and then obviously now with these um, these new measures that they're trying to bring in, it just sort of seems like people at the top aren't really getting what a lot of these women are trying to say, is that they don't feel safe, um, and they don't even feel safe from law enforcement. And I think, um, sort of, <laughs> I just think, I, I just find that whole sort of cognitive dissonance quite troubling, to be honest, and that was sort of, uh, what I took from what happened there. Um, it was interesting, actually. I just wanted to... I don't want to get too distracted by this. Obviously, Black Lives Matter is a massively important conversation, and I'm sure we'll find an, a, a time to talk about it in, in greater detail. But obviously, you mentioned um, 
the the Clapham Common vigil was uh, happened in the sort of same or similar sort of vein to how Black Lives Matter happened, i.e. we're in the middle of a pandemic, people shouldn't be gathering in crowds. Um, but obviously there was a, a sort of a social movement that people felt couldn't wait. So I, I was just curious as to uh, what you thought of how that compared with the Black Lives Matter movement. Should that have all... Should, should these movements be happening in, in the time of the pandemic? Is it a case of, you know, yeah, people are angry, people are fed up, they want to make their voices heard, but they really ought to wait? Or is it a case of, yes, we're in a pandemic, but people can, you know, arrange these events relatively COVID secure? We know, obviously, it's, it's harder to transmit COVID outdoors and people were largely wearing masks. Um, and, and, you know, these things can't wait because there's a pandemic on. So I was just sort of curious as to what you thought about that argument in general. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think it's, I would say it's a human right to be able to protest to things that you don't agree with. And if there's a big enough movement behind it, then yeah, I mean, of course, the, the Black Lives Matter things was massive in the summer. We had the on the year before, I know we were in the pandemic, we had the Extinction Rebellion. They're all of the same, you know, the same things. People want things to change and things don't change unless people start having the conversation and there's only one way to do that I think at the moment especially with you know as you say figures of authority have sort of missed the point I think with the plainclothes offices and nightclubs and stuff like that um but yeah I mean personally for me I wouldn't go um just because it is a pandemic I think you know I am it's, it's besides the point really because obviously I'm slightly higher risk um to, to a disease but I think if you if you can't you know, if you feel it's necessary, then sure. I, I was a little confused with the Sarah Everard one because obviously it was a vigil um, originally, and I think there's a difference between a vigil and a protest. Um, but again, as you say, they're both serious issues in society, and I think that they're not going to change unless there is someone does something about it. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's got a lot of coverage on the news. Um, and hopefully it does get people talking. Whether or not it was the best, I mean... Like you say, it's a vigil. Someone's died, um, which is sad. So I think it's always, you know, people grieve in different ways. And I think that there was a lot of women that had similar stories of of friends um, that had experienced similar things, perhaps not being ending in such the same way. But, you know, it, it is. Everyone's different. Um, and I think it's well within their rights to, to do that, pandemic or not, to be honest. Again, like I say, from my own perspective, I wouldn't do it in the middle of a pandemic. But... That's just me. Um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's important to be able to voice your opinions. No, I, I think I'd probably agree with you. I think as well, um, when you look at these sorts of things, I think there's always an excuse, you know, to delay them for another time. I mean, fair enough, you'd have to say a, a pandemic on the scale we've seen is a, is a pretty good excuse to sort of try and stop these things from happening. But I do believe that sometimes things can't wait. And, and, and although these issues in terms of Black Lives Matter and, and the thing around uh, gender-based violence will persist uh, after these events, um, you know, I think it's important for people who are affected by these movements to capitalise on the momentum they receive when things like this happen. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's, you know, a, a fair point. I think as well, it's probably worth us um, pointing out before we move forward this, obviously, neither of us are women. Um, so we probably do need to tread lightly and, you know, just acknowledge that um, we don't have the first hand knowledge um, of a lot of what we're talking about. So we can obviously only offer it from our own perspectives. And Joe, it's interesting as well. I think 
um, what you were saying about the video you saw. Uh, I think I've seen the same video. I think it's a TED talk, isn't it? And there's a guy talking about uh, how how he didn't stop his his female friend from being raped, and that was on him. Um, and to what I, 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 I find it fascinating because I've done a bit of soul searching since um, this all happened, and I was trying to think if there's ever been a point in my life where I've seen unacceptable behaviour from close friends or family members towards women and I was I was disappointed in myself because I couldn't think of any and I thought that can't be right because you listen to the scale of um um sort of these things that happen and you think how that I must have missed it I must have overlooked something surely there is something that happened that I should have been on top of but I, I, I don't know I don't know if you've had I don't know how you feel about that I don't know what you've uh, sort of thought about that yeah I think like you say I think I don't think it was I mean obviously there was a lot of time to reflect afterwards and like you say we're not women um so we can't speak from personal experience about what it is and I think that I find it quite difficult in society because obviously there's a lot of things where women say things and they're not really believed and I think it's important to sort of I know there's a there's a line um you know but I think it's important to listen to people if they are talking about this sort of thing. And I can't pretend that I've, you know, it's obviously disappointing. And I think you don't really think about it until you actually have time to really sit down and reflect. And obviously I can't pretend I've never seen this sort of laddish behavior. I've never seen obviously something, some of the horrible things that people have been talking about that have happened. Um, And that's not because I've turned a blind eye or anything like that, but I think it's obviously on all of us to do better, but I can't pretend that I've never heard people talking in derogatory ways about women I mean I was part of the football society for three years at uni you know I'm not naming any names or throwing people under any buses or anything because I think when when there's a load of blokes in under a load of alcohol it's not right for the way that people talk about it but like we can't pretend it doesn't doesn't happen you know I was there when it happened and I think so I suppose because you're surrounded by you know other guys you don't it's sort of you're a bit I don't want to say uh numb to it but obviously when you go to a social on a Wednesday evening or whatever and you've had a few drinks and stuff like that then it just I suppose it sort of goes over your head now I can't say that no one there who ever I've met there has probably never done this I can't speak and say for certain um but of course you know you always get people speaking in ways they shouldn't speak about other people and I just think that that's a route you know and I think it's our job to to make things better and to have the conversations with people that perhaps we wouldn't have um because it doesn't make it right just because there's no girls there or anything like that like it's not right for that to happen and you know I think like I say it's on us all to be a little bit better and probably a little bit braver with it as well because like I say I think everyone I think the 97% stat of people who had, or women in particular, who've had, you know, been sexually harassed. I think it's shocking. Um, and it's something has to be done about it. And if it's by having a conversation or have looking at things and thinking, well, that's not right. And can we do that better? I don't want to, you know, I'm not slating anyone here and saying, I just think that everyone could do a little bit better. Um, and I'm not saying that would stop everything. But at least we'd be having the conversation then. And I think that's what's what's important. And I know 
it might just seem quite empty me just saying our oh, words will are going to change everything and i don't think they will but dialogue is the the start i think and i think when you saw all those things coming out from women saying what men could do to make them feel safer it's important not just to poo poo it it's important just to listen um like you say we're not women so you know that's that's another role if you're not going to do anything about it then don't complain about it as far as i'm concerned and i saw a lot of people sort of taking offense to like don't get me wrong like it's not it's not all men it isn't but i think it's all men have a responsibility of making sure it doesn't happen and there are things that people can do that are quite simple to help that I'm sort of wondering like, from listening to to your experiences because obviously I made a comment that I, I couldn't remember. I mean, I'm, like you say, I'm sure given the, the prevalence we're talking about in terms of, you know, 90, like you said, 97% of women have, say they've experienced sexual harassment. Um, you know, I'm sure there have been times in my life where I've seen or been around men behaving inappropriately towards women. And maybe didn't either didn't notice, didn't recognise, or was too quick to sort of, you know, give them the benefit of the doubt. But I'm wondering if maybe because obviously they like say you were talking about being involved in, in football society at uni, which is obviously like the lad culture. I'm I'm not really involved with lad culture. You know, obviously I'm a I'm wondering, I'm a, this is just me thinking out loud, obviously I'm I'm gay. So I'm wondering when I sort of hang around with straight men they don't display that that attitude around me because I'm not I'm not going to join in. I'm not going to join in with the objectification of women. It's not obviously something I'm, you know, going to be interested in. Um, so I'm wondering if, if it is that very specific sort of subculture of masculinity that is really driving all of this. Because obviously this not all men thing. Obviously, I don't think the implication from anyone serious, anybody sensible, um, on any side of any debate is seriously suggesting that all men are guilty of doing these things. But, you know, there is a prescient point to make that men are the driving factor behind these fears and worries that women have. Um, and obviously I'm wondering now from listening to your experiences and my own is, is, is the culprit, you know, a lad culture lads, yeah, I mean, I think it plays a, a massive part. Like, I don't, you know, it's not obviously just, like, the football stuff. I mean, it's uh, it's hard to really nail it down, to be honest, because I think that every sort of dressing room I've ever been in has been not necessarily about women, just in general, about quite lewd and, you know, people say what they want to say and people just not do what they want to do, but... You know, all the football dressing rooms I've been in in the past have all been quite laddish. Um, and it is a it is a fiery environment and stuff like that. But I don't, I don't think it's entirely the root cause. I mean, I think it, it is when you sort of... I think if there's signs in someone's behaviour, I think you should be able to tell and you should be brave enough to call it out, basically. Um, but again, it's it's difficult to... The spot. I mean, like I say, a lot of the people that I went to football with, I would say, are very, very good people. Um, and they might have said something that, you know, they might say something in private that they would never say or never do in in person. And I don't think that makes it all right. But I, th- I think it's just very difficult. Like, there's no excuse in anything that's happened. That anything that you know, these heinous acts that people talk about, there's no excuse for them. 
there's there's no really saying, oh, it was lads, cultures, fool, whoever. Like at the end of the day, it comes down to the individual, but that is on them. And you know, I, I just go back to that video again when he said, I did nothing to to stop it. And maybe that's what's been missing really, because you know, it is on all of us to stop it. And how we stop the lad culture and stuff, I don't know. I I kind of feel like it's always going to be part of part of that environment because like things like always having a beer at the end of the game or you know you always have a mocking you mock your mates in there and if they've had a bad game you know you might wind them up about it and stuff like that and you know it's, it's hard it, it's very hard to nail down but there are there are ways we can do things better um and that result in people not getting hurt and i'm not again not saying that's a root cause but people should be better i think yeah, um, obviously nothing you can disagree with there, really. I, I'm just thinking now. So I, I, I looked at some statistics before, um, obviously we started recording, um, and I just want to stress before I read some of these out. These have been uh, lifted from the uh, Prime Survey of England and Wales. I think it was up to 20, March 2019. These statistics were valid, um, and I am going to caveat these at the end. So do stay with me while I read some of these out because they might sound a little off. Um, initially. So according to this survey, more men are victims of crimes against a person than women. So it's 3.9% of men compared to 3.4% of women. Um, men are, are less likely to be convicted um, following arrests than women, but they do make up 95% of the prison population. Um, domestic abuse, 64% uh, of victims are female um, and 67% of homicide victims are male um men are twice as likely to be subjected to violence by a stranger than a woman uh, which is 1.3 percent of men to 0.6 percent of women but women are four times more likely to be the victims of intimate violence and obviously the reason i, I said i wanted to caveat all this because it sounds here that men are at greater risk in general although obviously women are at greater risk of things like intimate violence the reason i want to caveat this is because one of the i think the the really important stat, as I've written at the bottom, is uh, of rape cases, which obviously predominantly affects women. Not always. We know that men can be raped as well, but predominantly women. Only 3.6% of rape cases end in conviction. So I do think, although these stats point at, you know, it being almost an equal sort of uh, threat to the genders in terms of violence against them, um, regardless of whether that is the case, there is a real tangible fear worry and terror against women and regardless of whether i'm not going to specify uh, speculate on whether these stats are entirely accurate what's going on because as i said from that last uh, it's every chance that this hasn't been reported holistically but there is a real terror that women have about uh being subjected to violence that men don't in my experience i, I was and the reason i bring this up is it, it's almost irrelevant then of, of what the numbers are because you know, that terror is real, whether or not it's based in, in, in the facts or not. It is real. And women are, women are telling us that they feel it. And I think that is really important to acknowledge. I, I remember a few weeks ago, I went for a walk at night with one of my uh, female friends. And she came to meet me in my house. And I thought, oh, it'd be funny if I like walk past, like, round the outside and like pretend I don't know her. And then I'll let her knock on my door and I won't be there. And I'll be like, ha I've been standing down the street the entire time to confuse her. 
And then she didn't notice me as I walked past her. And I and then I, when when I did eventually speak to her, I said, "Oh, that was really easy. But like, why didn't like you didn't even like look at me when I walked by?" She goes, "Yeah, well, I wouldn't because I was alone outside at night on the street on my own." And I thought that would never occur to me as a man to think like oh, that would never occur to me to be fearful of somebody walking past me in the street at night. But you know that I mean, I'm using that as an example of of the sort of fear and terror that women are facing. And you know, I think it's really important. I just wanted to see what you thought. I think it's really important that men in particular uh, do what they can when they are out and about to make women feel safer. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Like, I, I've never really even thought about it. Like, there's never been a point in my life where I thought, you know what, I'm scared to walk up. Well, I mean, obviously when I was younger and stuff like that, but there's never been a point in my adult life where I thought, I'm scared, I don't know how I'm going to get home, or, you know, oh, I need to go leave here because it's getting dark in 10 minutes. I've never thought about that in my life and it's it saddens me that women feel this fear that they're not able to walk around and it's it is genuinely sad like I think it's so important that men do everything they can to help help that you know I mean I found the there was a little sort of um picture going around I think it was on Instagram of things that men could do to make women feel safer walking home at night and not have to carry keys between um, knuckles and, you know, be prepared to run or not wear high shoes or whatever else, you know. And I found that incredibly useful to, to know, you know, what would make people feel safer. And I only have really have one experience of sort of seeing someone who was genuinely scared to walk home, and I didn't know them. Like, I was... Um, for those people who are in Leicester listening to this, you'll probably know Bede Park is quite a, a scary area. And, I, and, you know, so I, I ended up walking this girl and her friend through there with a couple of my friends just to make sure that they got, that got home. And I know it's obviously quite difficult at the moment for people to, to approach anyone. But if you know someone and they're walking home, you know that. Don't be afraid to go out of your way and, and make sure they get home all right or... You know, I know someone who ended up, it sounds like it's even risky to take a taxi on your own by the sounds of it. But, you know, even just to go out out of your way and then do make sure your friends get home, check up on them. And we shouldn't have to do it, but we do have to do it. And it's important that we just, we listen. And I know there's a lot of men going, as I said before, it's not me. I'm not doing anything. But if you're not doing anything about it to help make it better, you are as much of the problem as anyone else like you're not obviously like you know morally you're not as bad or but you have to do something something has to change and it's got to be it has to be us to do do it and we got to work with work with each other like I think the only thing I would say that came out of this um this uh Sarah Everard case so far I found is that I think most people are willing to work with the opposite sex to make things better for everyone else but there are minorities like, the, like I said I was talking about the men who are sort of they're taking it personally like it's not me it's not me and there are I think also women out there who are making this a men versus women narrative and that's not what it is we're all humans we're all just you know it doesn't matter what colour you are what language you speak you know it doesn't matter we're all in this together and I just think that we need to do better. And that's, it's easy for me to say that. But if everyone just did those things, or sorry, if men just did those things, 
the women are asking or, you know, called their friend up on something they said or if they saw something, they called them out on it. If we all did that, I think the world would be a little bit better and a little bit safer. And really, that's all it's about because, like I said, I've never felt that fear to walk home at night on my own. And I, I'm sad that that women feel that way and it shouldn't be like that. Yeah, I mean, obviously totally agree. It, it, it comes back to that thing I think you were saying is, you know, a lot of men will say they want to absolve themselves personally of any responsibility in things like this and say, you know, it's not me, I'm not culpable of this. But like you say, the scale of, 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 um, of sort of um, feeling from women, you know, 97% is a massive figure. You know, if 97% of women are telling you that at some point they've experienced harassment in their lives, then, you know, it is statistically an impossibility that even if you are, if, even if you aren't personally responsible for any of it, that you don't know somebody or you're not close to somebody who is responsible for it. And it comes back to, you know, a quite simple um, talk slogan is silence is violence. You know, we have to have a more collective responsibility when we see these behaviours. And a lot of the time it is difficult. I mean, I don't want to use that as an excuse, but it is difficult for people to stand up to their friends and family when they see them acting in a way that they shouldn't. But it, it's it's on all of us to do that. And I think even if it's a sort of a micro thing, things you wouldn't necessarily think is that problematic, you know, it can be indicative of a behaviour pattern that could be uh, or could become uh, problematic in the future. And I think, you know, that's, um, you know, that's really where we are with all of this now is that people need to stop um, sort of take, I mean, I find it disingenuous, like you say, this, this sort of twisting of semantics to make, you know, some men are using the twisting of semantics to make it themselves the victims. You know, this not all men thing. I think, like, like I'll say, there is no person, no nobody's seriously suggesting that all men are, you know, murderers, rapists, or whatever. Nobody's suggesting that. That is not at all. It is just, you know, they're trying to raise awareness of the scale of the problem. I think it is. It's a manipulation of semantics by people who want to sort of distract from the real issue and that that's all that is um but yeah i think it, it comes back to that as as a as a society and i do think as men in particular we need to we need to be more proactive and we need to do better because i think what surprised me is i knew obviously that you know women face these things i didn't realize how deep set and widespread this fear was among all women um and that has surprised me and given me personally a lot to think about, and I'm sure lots of other people. And I think that um, sort of leads us on to um, another topic we wanted to talk about today, and um, that is the ongoing feud between the the firm and um, and, and Meghan Markle and, and Prince Harry. So um, obviously. Did you actually watch the documentary, Aaron? Um, did you Did you watch the interview with Oprah? I did. Yes. Have you seen it? I've actually only seen. I've seen the um, the famous cut. I've not seen the whole thing. I tell you what. I've seen most of it inadvertently now because I've probably watched all the clips. <laughs> so I've probably ended up watching all of it, but no, not not officially anyway. Just as a, an official or unofficial, this is as an unofficial television review. My God, 
long interview is an understatement of the year. My two hours, I think it was, including all the adverts and stuff. And luckily, I recorded it so I could fast forward it for all of them. But feel sorry for anyone who didn't. Um, yeah, what a long interview, and it was very. I know it's obviously Oprah, but bloody hell, it was American. It was very American. <laughs> like I know it was. I know it was filmed for American television, but you know, I did not expect to see that sort of thing on ITV. And um, yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly interest i mean it was i think incredible is probably the word for it what an incredible piece of television unbelievable i mean the the, the claims that were made in there i look i don't look don't get me wrong i i'm not gonna beat around the bush i have no interest in Meghan markle and harry or the royal family like i don't get me wrong love the queen but i'm not really that fussed by what they're doing um you know, if she's on a state visit or whatever, then fine. But I don't need to read about it in the paper. Um, but this was this was something else. I mean, this was something that we'd never seen before. Two people. I mean, I've well, I've been on this earth for 24 years now, nearly 25 years. And obviously, there's a lot of coverage around Harry and William. And obviously, Harry's been in the army. There was that clip of him legging it off to the uh, in Afghanistan and all those sort of things. And and obviously. William's sort of one of the main people, well, not main people, but he's involved with the FA, so we see him on the FA Cup finals and stuff like that. But these people, you never really hear from unless it's, you know, I know this was a scripted interview, not scripted, but, you know, it was, it was a televised interview, but you never hear from these people. And I think the claims that they were making, they're, I mean, we have to address them, obviously, Chris, and you've probably seen the most talked about one I suppose and it's obviously become a bit of a meme now with uh, Oprah Winfrey in the mind glass box but what was your what was your take on on the particular I mean the claims of racism within the royal family I mean I think it was a it wasn't an outrageous claim I mean obviously there's people in the family that come from different times but I mean it's it's incredible really just to, to even go on television and 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 say that I mean it's unbelievable I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because we're both too young, obviously, to remember Diana and sort of the role that, that happened regarding how she left the royal family and then obviously how she died. So in some ways for us, this is sort of our first ever sort of royal, big royal scandal. I mean, I want to caveat, it shouldn't be. The issues surrounding Prince Andrew should be far more uh, publicised than they have been. Uh, maybe we'll talk about that a bit more you know, later on in this discussion. I just wanted to um, sort of start with that. Um, yeah, uh, regarding the comment about um, uh, Megan's uh, and Harry's son's skin colour. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not at all. I, I can't say I'm, I'm surprised with the accusations. Um, I, I mean, I'm going to probably uh, lose myself a, a few brownie points here with people listening. I am. Fairly devout anti-monarchist, um, so uh, you know I, I, I'm not surprised that people, you know, of of that stock uh, who were growing up in a quite antiquated institution would have antiquated views. To be honest, um, it doesn't surprise me. What I mean, it, the, the thing that surprised me is that Meghan shared that on such an international stage. I'm glad she did. I wish she'd have said who who said it. I wish they we could actually hold. People could hold them accountable, um, but no, I'm not surprised. Um, 
And I think, you know, in some ways, a lot of, of what happened in the interview does feed back into to similarly what we were talking about before regarding, you know, um, Sarah Everard and how women are feeling. I mean, it's this, this just complete and utter reluctance to believe women when they express that they feel under threat. Um, you know, for Meghan Markle to come on out in such a, you know, such a huge uh, global stage and to say I was suicidal is how that is so comfortably and easily sort of swatted as attention seeking in large parts of the media is astounding and really, really concerning. Nobody, nobody, sorry, nobody, regardless of whether you like Meghan Markle or not, you know, that's, that's mute at this point. You know, nobody goes onto a stage like that and makes a claim like that unless it's a serious thing. It just doesn't happen. And, oh yeah, I wondered what you thought about the reaction to that. I mean, we could obviously talk about the Piers Morgan uh, walk-off as well, and his sort of just barrage and, you know, unrelenting assault on Meghan Markle's character. And I just sort of wondered how you felt the press in particular had, had sort of reacted to Meghan Markle in particular in, in the interview. Obviously, less so Harry but mostly Megan. Yeah, I mean, yeah. where do I begin with Piers Morgan? I mean, it's no secret that I do not like that man. I find him rude, I find him obnoxious, and unless he's holding in the government to account, which I think he does very well, um, you know, I've got no time for him. And I think for him to poo-poo what she said about the mental health thing and just completely say, I don't believe her, that is a very dangerous and damaging message for not just Megan, and obviously I know she complained to the to the show about him, but to to society in general. I mean, how many times have we seen people take their own lives because they don't feel like anyone's listening? How is that helping? I don't understand. Like, it doesn't matter. I mean, even if even if you could say she wasn't feeling as strongly as this as someone else, there's no comparison between it. Like, everyone's feelings are valid. And I just think to poo-poo it is so dangerous. Like, you know, there was that Roman Kemp documentary on, I don't know if you saw it last night, on was it last night, might be the night before, on BBC. And he was talking about mental health and, you know, the, the emergency that we effectively face. And it's true. And it just showed me how easy, and because I know she's a high-profile celebrity and there's stories in the tabloids all the time. I mean, not specifically about her, about, you know, people struggling and whatever else. But why is she any different to to anyone else I don't understand I mean to me that was almost I know she's probably in a better place now but I still find that as a cry for help like I, I think that the media were incredibly unfair to her um I know obviously like there's a lot of comparisons between her um and Kate and there's always going to be that but I wonder because obviously Kate showed up at the Sarah Everard vigil I wonder what the press coverage would have been if Megan had turned up you know, and it's just the, the complete lack of responsibility. I mean, what I found the most disgusting about the whole interview was that she said that she'd actively, you know, she was seeking help from someone inside the royal household. And I don't know whether it was a member of the royal family or someone who works in the, well, comms team, I suppose we would call it. Um, and then they told her it would be a bad look for them if she went public with it or if she actually went to to seek help. I mean, what sort of message is that sending? 
it's it's I mean obviously the racism stuff aside because that's obviously another serious issue you know when someone's life is on the line I just don't understand how you can poop it and for Piers Morgan to come out and do that I mean I'm if I would have been interested to see if I if he sacked him if he didn't walk um, I find it quite ironic that he walked off the stage and he didn't like something that someone was saying to him you know and at the end of the day do I see a massive problem with them taking themselves out of the spotlight for to go to America not really do I think they've had it any easier not really the press has still continued have they left them alone no they might be more isolated from it now and I know she took that I can't remember which paper it was that she took to court and won the damages from them you know, they're obsessed with them. They're obsessed with them. They've made it worse. And the fact that now that the that people are just coming out and saying they don't believe her, I just find it, 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 dis, it disgusts me. It really does. And like I said, I'm not Harry and Meghan's biggest fans. I'm not, you know, what they do, I don't follow it particularly closely. But I just found that of everything, regardless if you like her or not, you can't ignore that. You cannot ignore that. It's just... It's 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 unbelievable. Not her stuff, obviously, but the, the way that people have reacted to it and said, "Oh, I don't believe her." Well, what would, would you believe it if you're? I don't know for people who have kids, would you believe it if your son came to you and said that? Would you believe it if your daughter came and said that to you? You know, your brother, your friend. I've had friends who said to me, "You know, I'm really struggling with mental health and stuff," and. I found the most useful thing to do because obviously I can't speak from experience because I've never really suffered from it and I'm thankful that I haven't had to deal with anything like that. But when people have come to me, I just think it's incredible. It's the best thing you can do is just listen and actually believe them and understand it or try and understand. You might not understand the space they're in, but like I say, it's just it's disgusting in the in this day and age that people are literally calling her a liar for going on. I know obviously people are talking about, oh, she'll get millions from it. And they did say at the start of the interview that, you know, they weren't paid. But if she's going on the stage like that, I find it very hard to believe that she would make that up. And it's an incredibly dangerous narrative, I think, from our press and people like Piers Morgan who have a platform and they have a platform to do so much good. But in reality, I think the only one who really came out of it shining and... I don't know if someone who doesn't particularly like Meghan Markle wants to come on and discuss this, but I thought she came out of it pretty well, to be honest, because all the focus is now back on the royal family. Who's the racist? Who's the one who said she couldn't get the mental health help? Um, you know, and obviously Piers Morgan's left Good Morning Britain, which is probably the best thing to come out of all of it. But there we go. And I just, like I say, it's just incredibly dangerous to be playing that narrative and saying, oh, she's a liar. And it just, like you say, it all ties into the... Uh, Sarah Everard stuff, you know, why why do people not believe it? I don't understand. Does it matter who you are? I'm not sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I mean, the Piers Morgan thing is, you know, in some ways, that is just the idea that he doesn't understand that, you know, he has such a big issue uh, with Meghan and Harry removing themselves from a toxic situation. And when that's pointed out to him that that's what they've done, he removes himself from what he considers a toxic situation. Um, it is, well, I mean, there's nothing left to say about that. The man is is a, a grade A moron. Um, to be honest, I, I think, like I say, I, I'm like you, I, I don't t- pay particularly much attention to the royal family. Can't say I know 
a great deal about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and what they get up to from day to day, or any of the royal families. But I don't really, you know, pay much mind to them. But you know, I have to say, I do find myself when these things happen, jumping to the defence of Meghan Markle because what I what I've seen, I'm sure millions of other people agree, since she came into the royal family. Um, so I was just having a bit of a chuckle because Aaron's sneezing uh, on his muted uh, microphone there. Um, um, <laughs> what I've seen since Meghan Markle became a prominent member of the royal family is a racist character assassination over relentless racist character assassination. And it absolutely appalls me. Uh, you know, we, you were talking about the Roman Kemp documentary. I haven't seen it, um, but I, I just wanted to sort of add to that. You know, we you look at some two prominent celebrities who have been in headlines in recent years, you know, Caroline Flack and Britney Spears. You know, you look at Britney Spears, obviously she is still with us, but she has suffered in, in a young age a relentless character assassination and she has found herself damaged, very da much damaged to the point that she's now stuck in Miss Conservatorship, uh, you know, uh, with her dad. And then obviously with Caroline Flack, she received such abuse uh, owing to her uh, situation with her boyfriend that she took her own life. And I think this sort of perception that some quarters of the media have that celebrities' lives are, are fair game and for us to sort of manipulate and play around with is just obscene. You know, and they don't they don't recognise the effects they have. And I remember, you know, particularly going back to the Caroline Flack thing, which was, I think, just over a year ago. In the out, in the sort of uh, outpouring of grief we had uh, nationally for Caroline Flack, most people were jumping on social media and saying, "Be kind." What happened to all that? What happened to all that? Now we've got millions of people watching a woman say that she was uh, having experienced years of a character assassination, one of those high-profile character assassinations ever, <laughs> saying that she wanted to seek mental health. Uh, support was was told she couldn't was subjected to uh, racist abuse on behalf of her child amongst her uh, new family um, and then when she expresses her regret and dismay at that situation and says that she was feeling suicidal she's told she's a liar I mean how I mean, it's, uh, frankly it's unbelievable that people behave this way because like you say if it was somebody they actually knew if it was their friend you know, if it was a family member, if even probably if it was just Doris from the shops, you wouldn't behave that way. But for some reason, we think because people are famous, they almost deserve to be treated like like shit. And it, it I, I, I just, I, yeah, it, it really does upset me when you you look at this relent. And I do see it as relentless victimization of her. And yeah, I say like, I don't. I'm not a Meghan Markle fan. I don't know enough about her to be a fan or not a fan. What I do know is what I've seen of the way she's been covered in, in the press and in the media is that she is relentlessly persecuted and held to just impossible standards that somebody like um, Kate Middleton isn't. She is, you know, she can do no wrong almost. He said it would have been interesting. I'm sure everyone's seen these the side-by-side -side headline comparisons of, you know, things they say about Kate compared to what they say about Megan, and it would have been interesting to see what they said if Megan had turned up uh, to the Sarah Everard vision, and I can only imagine it wouldn't have been positive. Well, I almost imagine it would have been 
Megan breaks lockdown or unnecessary travel and that sort of thing. Like, don't get me wrong, I I do like the Queen, um, and I do I don't have anything against William and Kate either. Like, there's no of any resentment to that, but I just find it very difficult to to see the way that Meghan Markle has been persecuted. But there's yet there's nothing really said about about Andrew, to be honest. And that's I know that's not a, a new opinion or anything like that. And it's. It's, it's almost like I say, it's unbelievable that that's that she's being smeared as much as she has when that's all going on, and there's been nothing more said on that, and that's sort of just all being swept under the carpet a bit. But do I expect anything less from the press? Not really. I mean, I know that April Winfrey obviously played on the fact she's a different colour, and there was that thing about what colour the baby would be and all that sort of thing. But you know, it's it's not beyond it's not beyond our tabloid press to to do that to be honest I wouldn't say that that's far-fetched at all a lot of people saying oh she's just trying to make that make it seem worse than it is but is it is she really I don't think she's that bad to be honest I mean I don't I think she came in she probably is she's been in tv she's a Hollywood actress she probably didn't have a clue about how things worked in the royal family she probably didn't expect that she was going to get reliving that life the way that the press followed her around and and gave her that treatment and I think like Carrie said and I think what was the most important thing that came out of it and again as you say like the things like the crown aren't factual documentaries or anything like that but people did love Diana and look at the way that they they persecuted her and in a similar way like Harry said I think they are they were persecuting Megan in in the tabloids but fortunately um well unfortunately rather the, the people just well I can't speak for everyone, but a lot of people didn't like her. You know, I wasn't particularly that old when, when Diana was around and when she was, you know, unfortunately died in that, in the accident. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just, I find it very difficult that, that people won't believe her just because she's got that smear campaign against her in the press, to be honest, and that's what it feels like. I almost feel like Piers Morgan was only interested in smearing her because he, she literally cut off ties with him and he like she he must have known that was going to happen she's literally a member of the royal family and he's literally given it large about how she doesn't follow the royal, royal protocol she doesn't do this she doesn't do that and first thing i would be saying to her if she was joining the royal family you can't speak to piers morgan because i mean as a journalist most of the lady but yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, it seems like he only wanted to know when there was um, self-gain interest for him. And like, as soon as he didn't get that invite to the wedding, he was just going to sling any sort of mud he could at her at any time, to be honest. And uh, there are some good people. I think there are some good presenters on Good Morning Britain, but I think that whole show when he's been on it, other than when he's been trying to hold the government to account, but they obviously didn't go on, um, has just been about him throwing mud at people. Him just loving the sound of his own voice, to be honest, and I'm very glad that he's gone. And I'm very glad that um, I think the interview's got a relatively positive reaction from Megan, to be honest. And do I blame them for moving now and knowing that? Do I blame them for moving to America? No. Do I blame them for wanting to step back out of the public eye? No. Do I think it could have been another situation like Diana? Yes, I do. So I completely understand it. And do you know what? I said good luck to him. I say good luck to him. You know, I'm not interested in hearing about him in the press. I'm not interested in hearing about TV. I think just let them live their lives and just leave them alone because they've had enough and I don't blame them. I would be exactly the same.
Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about Piers Morgan. I mean, yeah, my understanding is he was quite uh, sweet on Meghan Markle until whatever reason she, you know, cut off ties with him. And, you know, he comes across to me, you know, with that information as a man who has been slighted by somebody he was fond of. And, you know, that again links into all the other stuff we've discussed already tonight where, you know, a man uh, gets what he feels affronted by a woman and then has free reign to drag her name through the mud in the media and say pretty much whatever he likes and make her life a misery. I mean, I'm not for uh, a minute suggesting that, you know, he's the sole culprit here. Obviously, you know, the media is a vast institution, but he is as guilty as most in, in, in the uh, in the media industry of, of victimising Meghan Markle. And, yeah, I do think uh, the treatment which she has received is disgusting. I think, like you said, you know, quite rightly, you know, good luck. I think Harry uh, has recognised a pattern of behaviour that he probably is traumatised from having witnessed happen to his mother and he's just trying to protect his wife. And I think, yeah, I agree. Good luck to them. They've, like, you, no real interest in what they get up to, but if they're going to be happier outside of the public eye, and I can only imagine they will be, or, you know, not in the same uh, scrutiny as they currently, uh, as they had when they were active members of the royal family, then, yeah, why not? Why wouldn't you take yourself out of it? So my only other uh, question for you, actually, on this is, bit of a, uh, a contentious one is this could this contribute to the eventual fall of the monarchy in the UK um, I just don't ever see the monarchy ending to be honest and it, I mean it could in, this, in spite of what everything I've said I don't like I said I don't really have anything against the Queen I went to her jubilee it was a good laugh there were good things happening all, all over the shop um, and you know, she seemed like a, you know, a reasonably decent person, I think. Um, I don't think the monarchy will end. I think there's too many people that support it. I think it's got too much um, pull for tourism. I mean, you look at it, you look at people that can't even go inside Buckingham Palace, but look how many people flock to outside the gates. And I expect once uh, once the restrictions end, I think they will probably see similar scenes again of all the tourists returning, which, you know what, I'll actually be pleased pleased to see him back <laughs> I didn't think I'd say that when I was literally trying to get to work on the train there's millions of tourists all ahead of me um trying to get to Buckingham Palace but now um it, it, it's a tough one because I know there's obviously you're usually with the monarchy you're either one end of the scale or the other you're neither you don't really just sit on the fence about it and like I mean to be honest with you I've not got particularly strong views on on it like I think it is what it is it's always been there it's not really affecting me massively i mean i like i said don't mind the queen um but yeah i just think it will live on because that's just how it is really <laughs> um yeah i mean the only thing i have against sort of the, the monarchy is the ridiculous amounts of money they spend on doing up buckingham palace where i think they could be spent on a lot better things and i know that that's something that's a lot of people have griped to, but that's another story entirely. I just don't see the monarchy ending, and I am not in favour particularly of ending it. I don't, like I say, it doesn't really affect me. I'm not an anti-royalist. Um, but, yeah, I just, it, it is what it is, basically, I think. Oh, what a shame. You don't agree. 
<laughs> I mean, I, no, I, I think you, that you're right. You're saying, I don't think this is going to. I don't think this will end the monarchy. Unfortunately, um, I did have a look. I, I, my uh, interest was P. I did have a look to see um, if this has sort of moved the needle in favour of republicanism. So a quarter of the UK, according to the latest opinion poll, uh, opinion polls want the crown abolished. Probably as high as it's ever been, but a quarter is not particularly high, obviously. Um, I mean, a lot of Commonwealth countries uh, are moving against the royal family in, in the wake of um, uh, the revelations regarding Meghan Markle and the Prince Harry's interview. But obviously, their attachment to the monarchies and institutions probably not as strong as in the UK. So that's all we've got time for on episode two of the Lowest of the Low podcast. Obviously, we've talked about some uh, very tough but very important issues. Uh, today if you've got anything uh, you'd like to say about anything we've discussed today or any feedback or any suggestions for shows in future then do please uh, get in touch with us at lowestofthelow at gmail.com